our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today's gospel story is set on the edge of the water of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum. Jesus had been teaching all day, and when evening came, he said, let's go to the other side. If you're looking at the Bible map on the screen, you can see up in the top center the blue area, which is the Sea of Galilee. And above that to the left is a a star, and that's where Jesus and the disciples were in the setting in this story. It's up to the northwest, the Jewish side of the sea. Sometimes they call it the lake. And then down on the southeast of the map where there's a yellow star. You like my artwork, by the way? Really creative. And that is the, quote, other side that Jesus refers to when he tells the disciples to get in the boat and let's go over to the other side. Up until this point, the ministry of Jesus had been in and around the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee, places like Capernaum and Bethsaida and Magdala, down a little farther down to the west. And he established Capernaum as the home base for his ministry. It was a coastal town with lots of shops and places you could get some food, markets. You could get the fresh catch of the day after a long day in the town and enjoy that when you got home. This is the perfect place for Jesus to connect with people as they went about doing their commerce, to meet and train potential disciples who would follow him. After a year or so of public ministry, Jesus had quite a following. People followed him and pressed in on him. They wanted to have healing. They wanted just, if they could just touch the hem of his garment. Sort of like the gallery at last Sunday's PGA tournament as Phil Mickelson, who would eventually win, approached the 18th green. People were pressing in around him on all sides, and it was almost like he was uh, pressed in, and then all of a sudden you see him emerge on the green. I imagine some of the crowds that follow Jesus were like that. Mark writes, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. Just as he was in the boat. And Scripture says there were other boats with him. What does it mean when Mark writes, the disciples took him along just as he was? To understand this, we go back to the very first part of chapter 4, the very first verse. Jesus had been teaching on the Sea of Galilee. The crowd had gotten so large and pressed around him that he said, "Uh, I, I need to use that boat. And he got in a fishing boat. Here's a model or a replica of first century fishing boat there on the screen. And he went out a little ways off of the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee and continued in his teaching. He sat down like a rabbi would sit and taught using the natural acoustics of the wind and the 
water to allow his words to be propelled up to the people as they sat eagerly waiting what he would say next. He told things like the parable of the farmer who scattered seed. And he told the parable of the mustard seed that would grow to be the largest plant in the garden. So you can picture Jesus there teaching all day long, sitting out in a normal everyday fishing boat, speaking of the kingdom of God. And evening comes and it is time for Jesus to stop for the day and rest. You know, even Jesus needed rest. Even Jesus grew tired and weary. Even Jesus was hungry. So when the disciples set out in the boat, they left the crowd behind and they took Jesus just as he was in the boat, meaning he sat right where he was in the stern of the boat and they commenced to head southeast to the other side. They didn't go to the market to get some bread and dried fish for Jesus to eat. They didn't go and get him a change of clothes. He didn't go back to Simon's house to take a nap. They set sail with Jesus just as he was, tired, weary, hungry, after a long day of teaching. Other boats followed him. Some commentators say those were probably people who got in their boats and tried to get out there closer to Jesus. But those boats followed he, uh, Jesus and the disciples. Neither those people nor the disciples knew what was getting ready to happen. As they sailed southeast across the Sea of Galilee, a furious squall came out of nowhere. The Sea of Galilee is something like 682 feet below the sea level of the Mediterranean Sea. And the hot air of the Sea of Galilee just pulls down the storm clouds that come out of Mount Hermon from the north and squalls like this. Furious storms can come up with no notice. One day it's perfectly placid and you're enjoying the calmness of the sea and the next moment a furious storm comes out of nowhere. In Luke's gospel, he records it like this. A storm fell suddenly from Mount Hermon down into the Jordan Valley and violently onto the Sea of Galilee. Luke 8, 23. The Greek word used to describe this storm is the same Greek word used in the Old Testament Greek translation, the Septuagint. And it it's the same word that used to describe the whirlwind out of which God answered Job and the storm that nearly sank the ship Jonah was on. You remember those stories? It was not uncommon for those storms to come out of nowhere, and it still happens today. This is not a rainstorm, but a windstorm, and it was the wind that caused the tempest at the sea. The disciples feared for their lives as the boat took on water, I imagine for every one bucket they bailed out, two or three more flowed in. They feared for their lives. And all the while, Jesus was asleep on the stern. Do you think he had a beanbag cushion? 
I think it was like a Bass Pro Shops fish pillow. I have one of those at home. Or just a little cushion mat, whatever, however you want to imagine it. But there was Jesus asleep after a long day of teaching in the midst of this storm. And the disciples wondered why he didn't do something about the storm. They rebuked Jesus. Verse 38b, the disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care? Can't you see what's happening? They rebuked Jesus. Sadly, I've done the same thing. When things haven't gone my way, sometimes we pray like that. Jesus, don't you care that I've lost my job? Don't you care that there's more rent due at the end of the month than there is paycheck to go around? Jesus, don't you care that my husband is sick? Jesus, don't you care if my child has an addiction? Jesus, don't you care that I am lonely and sad and feeling depressed and isolated? As the Revised Standard Version puts it, Teacher, do you not care if we perish? This is their feeling, and I imagine if we were on the boat that we would feel the same way as humans. But even though Jesus was tired and weary, he heard their cries for help. And he stood up. Imagine this small fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of a squall. And Jesus stands up there in the back of the boat. And he rebuked the wind. And then he told the waves, hush. The Greek word for be still or hush is also translated as using a muzzle. Like when someone muzzles a dog to keep it from barking. Jesus put a muzzle on the storm. Be still. Hush. And the scripture tells us that the winds died down and the waves stopped. And there was peace. All became calm. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Jesus said, hush, be still, that we might say it is well, it is well with my soul. After this display of divine power, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? After over a year with me, do you still not have faith? After witnessing 
the stories. I'm, I've changed water to wine. I've healed the sick. I've made the, uh, the lame to walk. I have cast out demons. The winds and the waves, that's just a piece of cake. Trust me in this. It's going to be okay. They needed this message of reassurance from Jesus on that day because their journey to the other side had just begun. They hadn't seen anything yet. The other side was the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. They were going into a territory where they were not welcome. The other side was the Decapolis, ten Greco-Roman city-states that were situated east of the Sea of Galilee, populated not with Jews so much, but rather with Greeks who had been uh, settling there since the time between the Testament before Jesus. There was ongoing friction between these two groups. The Greeks were offended by the Jewish religious and ritual practices. And the Jews were offended by the Greeks' religious idolatry and their swine herding. Swine were unclean. Once they made it to the other side, as you know, they ended up in an area called Gerasa. And you can see the colonnades of Gerasa there on the screen. And this is where Jesus would encounter the man that we know as the Gerasene demoniac. A man with an evil spirit, they would lock him up and the chains couldn't contain him or hold him. He would continue to, to scare people and to threaten them. And this was uh, something that I think characterized the evil in that particular area as you study about it. He was symbolic of the grip evil had on that place. Jesus knew that the storm that they experienced was probably nothing compared to the spiritual warfare that they would experience over there on the other side. And that night during the storm, Jesus arose and he took authority over the situation and he would do the same thing over the evil spirits as he cast out the demons from this demoniac. And you remember the story of how they went and lodged up into the swine herd and the swine ran down into the sea and perished. And this man was free. And he said, can I come follow you? And Jesus said, no, go back and, and tell those around you and your family what happened. And I imagine that he became quite the evangelist as he went back and shared the good news of his healing. In doing all of this, Jesus demonstrated that he was Lord of the wind and the waves and that he was Lord over the demons. That even the demons acknowledged who he was. The situation provided the opportunity for the disciples to be in awe of him. There's a different Greek word for fear here at the end of the scripture. It's phobeo, which is translated here as a reverent fear. King James, they feared exceedingly. Revised Standard, they were filled with awe. The message, they were in absolute awe. They were awestruck. And I hope and pray that I never cease to be amazed at the power of God. I don't know about you, but sometimes I acknowledge, I'll, I'll say something like, God really showed up, didn't he? In that service or in that situation. 
Sometimes we are awestruck at the big things, but how often are we awestruck at the everyday miracles that we pass by often? So I pray that God would help me to be awestruck at the mundane and the mega things, the big things. Lord, help me stand amazed at the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. I want to suggest that when Jesus headed to the other side, that Satan was prepared for battle. Perhaps the sudden storm could be an element of the cosmic battle between good and evil, love and hate, a foretaste of the spiritual battles that were to come when he went to the other side, and he would go there often. This story reminds me of the symbol of the church. It's often symbolized as a ship with a cross as a mast since early centuries. And I, I sense when churches set out on a journey, when churches sense a new mission, when churches send teams or even whether it's far from here or close and we are going to the other side, perhaps uh, a, a people that are oppressed or those who are left out and overlooked, that we are seeking to do something big for God, that, that the adversary stands up and tries to oppose that to keep the church from fulfilling the mission that God has for us. Things like this happen when the church is on the breakthrough. The, the, the disciples were getting ready to, to embark on this ministry to the other side. And the storm couldn't hold them, and the, the, the demon couldn't either. Church, I believe that we must mentally and spiritually prepare ourselves to deal with the adversary's attacks and schemes. That we would put on the whole armor of God, as Paul writes in Ephesians. That we would, as Jesus did, rise up and take authority in Jesus' name over the wind and the waves that come against our church family and our own family. As we emerge from this pandemic as a church seeking to revision itself to fulfill the mission and purpose that God has for us, we must be prepared that spiritual attacks will come. The adversary does not want to see the church succeed in reaching people in the name of Jesus Christ. And we must know that Scripture provides these accounts to help us to be aware even now. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian Christians might be our prayer as we emerge from this pandemic year and set our sails to follow the Lord of the wind and the waves. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. 